0: You're listening to The Bravest Show on radio. Hit subscribe anywhere you get your shows and never miss an episode. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in and welcome
1: aboard. You're listening to The Matthew Dark Show, where truth is the only language spoken and Jesus is the only Lord served.
0: Democrat voter. Holy cow, are you looking for a refund? Because (laughs) what was promised, right? Ladies and gentlemen, it's showtime. Now, here's your host. Take it away, Matthew. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in and welcome aboard. This is the Matthew Dark Show, and wherever, however, you join us, we thank you. Now, remember, hit subscribe everywhere you get your shows. Never miss an episode. We thank you in advance for that super important show today. Now, from the beginning, since COVID began, uh, it was it was this show's mission to bring truthful insight from those with experience that are in, at the ground level, on the front lines, bringing us very life-saving, critical information. And so we have more of that today. We're so proud, so glad to have Nathaniel Mead. There's a new paper out, the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, lessons learned from the registrational trials and the global vaccination campaigns. Nathaniel Mead, I want to welcome you in. And how are you today, sir?
1: Thanks. Doing well. Thank you.
0: Well, just such important work that you've brought to us. Uh, there's, of course, pressure on this work to keep it in a bottle, to keep it closed. And there's a there's a duty, of course, because you're breaking information that is so profound and so society changing. I'm wondering if you could just let our listeners know kind of the, the pretext to even put together a paper like this. Uh, when COVID hit, kind of your reaction, where you were at, and then what led us to this moment. And then I want to get into the importance of this paper. Nathaniel Mead, I'll hand it over to you, sir.
1: Okay. Uh, well, when COVID hit, um, <clears throat> I was surprised by the uh, the immediate uh, display of what seemed to be uh, overreach on the part of the government um, and the federal agencies in terms of pushing people into these narratives around masking and physical distancing, social distancing. Um, you know, isolating people even when they were healthy Uh, in their homes, uh, telling people not to exercise. (laughs) I mean, just crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. Across the board, it didn't make any sense. And then when the uh, so-called vaccines were approved or authorized in December of 2020, it was it, it seemed to be a continuation in terms of the the languaging that was being used to get people to buy into the whole uh, vaccination campaign. And so my feeling was that you know they kind of got people programmed to follow the agenda through the uh masking mandates and the and the physical distancing mandates. and then they you know started us on this idea that, well, you know, you're protecting the the vulnerable Mm -hmm. fraction of the the small portion of society that really is at high risk of dying from COVID-19, which is a very tiny, tiny percentage. But that got blown up through a lot of media sensationalism uh, around the mortality picture. And many people don't realize how it got distorted in 2020, Um, you know, how so many deaths that were labeled as COVID deaths were not really COVID deaths. But all of that just got people in this fear-based way of thinking about the vaccinations. And that carried on well into 2022. I think it started to ebb toward the end of 2022 as people started to wake up and they started to hear the alternate narratives. But there was so much suppression and, and censorship going on throughout the whole thing that I never felt that the story really got told in a clear way from a scientific perspective. And that was my main motivation for researching and writing this paper. Um, and it, you know, it started for me, it was uh, triggered by some ins- inspiring conversations I had with with a few scientists back in Uh, early 2023. And uh, in fact, I was part of a roundtable discussion among uh, an international group of scientists. Um, And it informed my desire to write this paper, which is really a a review of the evidence told um, from the standpoint of kind of weaving together the key themes that apply to the vaccinations, why they were unsafe, uh, the degree to the, which they are unsafe, and it was very clear from the beginning to everybody who had rational thinking skills, critical thinking skills, that these things were unsafe because the government was saying safe and effective, even though there was only a two to three month trial, and you know, I, I knew from having read about these things before that the the standard time frame for for testing these things was 10 to 15 years so so there it just didn't make any sense we so we knew when we came into writing this narrative review uh that the um it was really a question of how unsafe they were and and how do we assess the degree of uh unsafety and so that's that's really what we uh were focusing on um i uh Okay, I see you brought it. I've
0: got the paper in <laughs> front of us now. This is what we're talking about. And let me just bring our listeners so they understand this paper is newly re- re- newly, released. Now, Nathaniel Mead, several other authors on this paper, including Dr. Peter Mercola, uh, probably the most documented, the mo- the face of sort of this stop and pause and questioning the science behind this. He is a big one, uh, a part of this paper and has been a big face of this. I, I wonder, how did this group come together to put this paper together, and then let's get into the meat and bones of it, if you would.
1: Well, I was having uh, discussions with um, these this group of scientists, as I said earlier, in 2023. Um, and I have to thank Steve Kirsch, who introduced me to a lot of these guys. Steve was um, inviting a group of scientists to come together and talk about the various issues that he was presenting in the form of a debate. And so he wanted to see if he could get a, a group of, of uh biostatisticians and epidemiologists together to to discuss these things and uh and and see if if we could come to some some really meaningful conclusions about the uh the lack of safety and, and the degree to which these things were unsafe. So that that was a a golden, uh, opportunity for me. I, I had to submit a a cover letter and a resume and, you know, had to then get into this group and we would meet once a week to discuss all these things. Mm. And it just, um, it just blew my mind how much was misunderstood in the, among the the medical community and, and, and the general public due to the fact that so many studies were, were, Poorly done, were flawed, fundamentally flawed, and as you probably know, but many in the public do not know, uh, most medical doctors have no training in epidemiology and biostatistics. So they're they're prescribing these shots to their patients without really understanding the larger context, the larger scientific context. Mm. So, uh, you know, I think everyone is starting to realize that this was an uncontrolled global experiment. Uh, You know, it was probably the biggest case of public health malpractice that has ever been seen Mm. because, you know, so much misinformation was just spilling forth constantly from the government. And meanwhile, they're labeling people like me who are questioning the, the narrative, misinformation spreaders now. I never got named that because I, I didn't come out in public. I was working behind the scenes mm-hmm. and it wasn't until this paper that I really decided to go public with it. but um, you know we, we were looking at uh, the, the risk benefit aspects of this, which I think, you know, we've actually gotten flack from both sides because we uh, on their side, the, the, the opposite side, they're angry at us because we talk about the risks, the hazards. Mm-hmm. And on our side, we're, people are angry at us because we're talking about any potential benefit. But right. people have to understand that when you do a risk-benefit analysis, you're, you're really having to consider how much of a presumed theoretical benefit mm-hmm. is in terms of reducing COVID-19 uh, mortality how that is offset by a potential increase in vaccine induced mortality okay so yes. that's that's the way that a risk benefit analysis works you, you you unfortunately you have to you have to presume a certain amount of benefit and right. uh you know we came up with what we thought was an extremely conservative estimate which mm-hmm. was for every covid death that was prevented there were 14 uh deaths caused <laughs> by the vaccine now, that, that's very conservative. yes. Uh, because, because the uh, the benefit is is uh, based on, you know, a uh, uh, healthy population. It's based on the uh, uh, you know, vac- the, the original randomized clinical trials, which was the the focus of our paper primarily starting with. we started with the, the an original clinical trials that authorized uh, the Pfizer and moderna vaccines. And, and then we went into what happened after the authorization process, but we used the clinical trial data to es- estimate the presumed benefit, because that's the best data there was, even though that data itself is pretty bad. <laughs> to yes. be honest, that's what our paper shows. So uh, anyway, the... the uh, I would say that people need to understand if they're if they're still on the fence about this, which I find hard to believe, oh. but there are people, there are people who are still believing that these things are safe and effective because it was drilled into them for over and over again, safe and effective, safe and effective. And after a while you start seeing it, it's subliminally presented on the screen during sports events and all of this thing. And after a while, you just start to believe it, you know, it's kind of it almost becomes like a, a an ideological issue. Right. Um, I mean, this is as as Dr. McCullough says, this is a 200 year uh, ideology, the vaccine industry. Um, right. So, so uh, I'll just say one last thing before I take uh, a question for you. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really important, as I was about to say that You think in terms of a precautionary perspective. If you see, if you see uh, uh, the Pfizer releasing information saying that there were 1.6 million—this is what came out in August 2022—Pfizer's own records showed 1.6 million adverse events up until August, 2022, that is from their data that they were hiding from the public that they wanted sealed for 75 years yes. by, and the federal judge said, no, we're not gonna do that. Now, if you're skeptical about our paper, well then just look at the Pfizer documents, which 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 show that people had severe heart problems, uh, yes. all these issues that were related to uh, paralysis and strokes. And, and uh, so, from a precautionary perspective, those things never, those products never should have been allowed on the market just from that point of view. Uh, But uh, yeah, so.
0: Well, you know, that's so well set up because, you know, it's so weird to look at this from the perspective of Of a person that this is all new information to right because as yourself dr mccullough the real leaders in this movement uh, they smelled it day one that there's something going on we've never done medicine like this before so again we commend the bravery and then now try to present it in a way that the average person can say not only am i no longer interested in these vaccines uh, i'm actually now an advocate For raising awareness and really turning the table, I wonder the greatest lie of the vaccines was this safe and effective talk. And safe and effective, we'd have to think somehow goes back to the testing. We tested it so well. We had so many scenarios. We've heard uh, Pfizer executives confess in front of Congress we never tested for efficacy or effectiveness against transmission. I mean, it's like, wait, what? What? So. Tell us a little bit about this safe and effective. Where did they even get terminology like that? What was the studies that they said, well, see, the outcome was safe and effective? Because the reality is, is it was the opposite.
1: Yeah, the, the vaccine industry has a very long history of underreporting their, uh, their risks, their, their, their adverse events. Um, the estimates are that for most trials, they only report about 5% on average uh-huh. of all the adverse events.
0: So, uh, and how does this, that allow, so stop right there for the people, because I hear this and I think, okay, well, hold on, stop, stop, stop. You're not allowed to proceed because you've deceptive. So how, I mean, that's more of the collusion between all the entities, big pharma and those that are granted. Cause how could you say we're going to withhold such critical information and still get a, a, a go ahead?
1: Well, this is an old habit. It's, it's, they've been doing it since the 1970s. And they've gotten away with it for so long. And initially, the FDA was uh, monitoring the situation somewhat before the FDA got captured by the pharmaceutical industry, which was a you know, it's the largest industry on the planet. That's not an exaggeration. Mm-hmm. It has more money. It, you know, probably brought it, it, probably raked in not just hundreds of billions, but even in the trillions. Um, in this whole pandemic this was this, yeah. this made a lot of billionaires and, and uh you know i it's a, it's a big question that you're asking but i would say the first thing is that safety is always something that drug companies don't want people to look at right okay so what happens is they they put it through a trial. And then after the thing is approved or authorized in this case, it wasn't actually approved. Um, And the reason for that is because they could get away with it being an unsafe product. (laughs) That's why they authorized Mm -hmm. it um, and a very unsafe product at that. So what happens is they release it. And and in the post-marketing surveillance period, then all of these adverse effects show up for these drugs. Okay, these are drugs that we're talking about. Um, and uh, the reason that they're drugs is that when you insert a genetic code into the body in order to generate a spike protein, it's essentially the same thing that was classified as gene therapy products before the, the uh, pandemic. In fact, if you go back and you look at the uh, um, mRNA vaccines that were uh, being studied in the cancer literature, in many papers, they're referred to interchangeably as gene therapy products and mRNA vaccines, okay? So mm-hmm. we don't have to get too attached to a word. You know, whether we call it mRNA vaccine, I know some of my colleagues are like, don't call it a vaccine, right. you know? Yeah. But yeah. it doesn't really matter it, because we know that they were thought of as gene therapy products and also as prodrugs, which means they're stimulating the body to produce a protein, And in this case, it's a spike protein, which is highly toxic and highly inflammatory, uh, and and more inflammatory than the spike protein that's associated with the actual natural infection with the uh, coronavirus. I don't know if I should use the word natural, but but you know what I'm talking about. Instead of people getting injected, they're being exposed through interactions with other humans. And one is voluntary, the other is involuntary to a large extent, right? right because, right. so it's a, it should have been a choice from the beginning. That was my view uh, and many others, uh, uh, you know, this was a medical freedom issue from the very beginning because it was an experimental vaccine. But going back to the safe and effective issue, um, I was really shocked. When Anthony Fauci started to use that phrase so openly, um, right. and I—I'll I never forget listening to uh, an interview he had with a, a, a National Public Radio commentator, and he was talking about the, the, the interviewer said, "Well, uh, how long does the protection last from the vaccines?" Now, at that point, it was very early on in 2021, and uh, or yeah, it was, it was really early and. Mm-hmm. He said, well, six months, but that statement was, ironically, it was based on the data for natural immunity. Mm -hmm. It was based on if people got infected with the coronavirus, they had six months, but because they didn't actually have the data yet for the vaccine, he he, he went to the data for that. So when (laughs) I heard that, I said, what? And and then the interviewer said, "Um, oh, and that's because we only have data going up to six months. And he said, yeah, right, right, yeah. Ugh. Now, what he should have said was, well, honestly, that's actually based on infection data uh, that shows how long people had immune protection. So there was that kind of thing going on constantly, but it, it was it was a sleight of hand. It was a it was deception uh, that that gave the public the, the misperception that these things were not only safe, but effective, at least for six months. Right uh but even then if you think about it i mean we were told initially that um these things would we'd only have to get a shot once every year right Right. and and then it became six months then suddenly after that it was like well if you're in a high risk group it's like three months maybe two months and and so it kept and and the reason for that of course is that the virus was mutating and they knew that the virus these coronaviruses were mutating all the time Mm -hmm. and that that you would see uh the target was, was a moving target, you know? So, so if you, if you designed a a shot for one virus then by the time the virus had already mutated, you know, the, the, the shots were outdated. uh, Right. Oh, bummer. Now we
0: got to sell you an updated one. Sorry. yeah,
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I really, I think, um, you know, the, the randomized clinical trials, the reason that we start with that, the reason that we're, is not only that they were the basis for the authorization, but in science, the randomized clinical trials are always considered to be the gold standard for proving something. You know, so it, whether it was, you know, whatever medical or public health intervention it was, if you had a large randomized clinical trial and you showed that it could reduce severe disease and hospitalization, and, and which is usually correlated with death, then um, that randomized clinical trial is showing something significant from a public health point of view. But these trials never showed any Mm. effect on severe disease, hospitalization, or death. In fact, there has never been a large randomized clinical trial that has shown any impact on those outcomes. Instead, we only have observational studies, which I've looked over dozens and dozens of these studies and discussed them at length with this group of epidemiologists back in you know last year and we found that all of those studies were fundamentally flawed and many of them were fraudulent they're outright fraudulent you know and and still to this day you know I will meet physicians who were working with let's say the elderly back which of course was the high risk group for you know that was the group that everyone was concerned about still is concerned about to some extent although now it's on a par with the flu so it's not it's not an issue but um back in in uh 2021 especially when the united states had a huge and the world had a dramatic distribution of all these products of these mRNA vaccines. Uh, Many practitioners in hospitals were dealing with elderly people who they thought were unvaccinated. But that's only because the hospitals were classifying them as unvaccinated if they only got one shot. Mm. So if somebody just got one shot, they, a practitioner would look at the foreman and very often it would have negative vaccination status or if they got two shots, but it was before the 14 day period where you were considered fully vaccinated, they were actually being registered as unvaccinated. Hmm. And in many other cases, they just hadn't had time to put it in the system yet. It often took months before these things were getting in the system. so. The practitioners, the, 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 the doctors, who are very innocent, I think, in this matter, and still yeah. to this day, genuinely believe that they were doing the right thing because they were seeing people who were classified as unvaccinated dying. Okay. So they but, were
0: being deceived in real time before their eyes. And so that is a good point because you do kind of hold these doctors like, well, hold on a second. Where were you speaking out? but they were yeah. being a bait and switch themselves
1: yeah exactly and and you know the, the irony here is that those elderly people especially the frail elderly were most at risk of dying from the serious adverse events of the vaccines right so and and if they died in the in that 14 day period as you know i'm sure you know this they, they were misclassified as unvaccinated and and that that was a huge problem because the the CDC, which I unfortunately you know I used to trust them. A lot of my colleagues that we we all used to trust them. We didn't we thought that of all the agencies, the CDC was still objective, but we didn't realize that they had been captured, mm-hmm. and 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 so they published the Mor- morbidity and mortality weekly report. That is basically their advertising rag. Yes, <laughs> it's not a peer-reviewed. They'll put they'll put dozens and dozens of authors on there on each of those reports, and these reports sometimes are like huge populations that they're looking at, right? But they use their own CDC guideline, which, as I mentioned, is the 14-day rule that you're not fully vaccinated until 14 days. So anybody who has a serious adverse event or dies before that time is classified as unvaccinated and most elderly people who are having adverse reactions are dying within that 14 day period. We know that from autopsy studies, large autopsy studies, they all show that these things are mostly happening in that period. Now there is a delay where people are also dying down the road, but the, the most, um, easily ascribed temporal causal relationship is is established in that 14 day period. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's really um, misleading that the CDC has continually published these reports using this guideline. And then what has happened is scientists, uh, public health scientists around the world have used that guideline in setting up their own studies. You know, so and right. and many of them know that it's 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 fraudulent. They they know that it's yeah. fraudulent, but they've done it because they're getting a lot of money. I think it, money is the bottom line. Um, and then I think for the physicians who have who have uh, prescribed or you know recommended these to their patients and and distributed them, what's happened is the physicians are suffering from what I would call. Uh, prescribers bias <laughs> right you know there's there's users bias where you get injected yourself and yep. then you're in denial about any potential risks right no, no. and you no. focus on well i'm protecting grandma because i'm reducing transmission and right. infection even though we know that's complete myth that yep. that never that has no validity at all mm-hmm. that was the big argument for blocking people from being able to go to stores and stuff if they were unvaccinated and it was a complete <laughs> BS. But, and and so, but the, the um, you know, when you look at um, elderly people who, uh, and, and I come back to them because I I think it's really tragic how much miscategorization of, of deaths and serious adverse events has happened. And if you were a user and you're an elderly person, you probably, and you, and you survived, you did well, you're like, well, I'm, I'm fine. Right. And then, and then your family members looking at you and go well she's fine you know she didn't have any adverse effects but most people don't realize that these shots have a great deal of variation in their composition and so it is very much like russian roulette mm-hmm. and only a small percentage uh, about 4 to 8% of all the shots have uh, lethal effects uh, or potentially disabling, crippling effects. Um, mm. And and so that's a small fraction. But, you know, again, when you look at the overall population, you consider the billions of people have gotten these shots, yeah. you know, that's spread out. Yeah. Plus, plus, what we're starting to realize is that many of these um, serious uh, adverse events may be in the long term, okay? Yeah. And uh, I know I'm rambling on here, but I'm just going to say that, mm-hmm. uh, In in that regard, something that I always forget to say is that young people who get the myocarditis, which is the number one concern, I would say on an overall population level, the myocarditis is is the major one. First of all, many of those cases, a large, very large percentage are asymptomatic. So people don't even know that they've had the heart damage, okay? Mm-hmm. The only way you would know is if you had a troponin-level uh, blood test called the troponin, and then, and then you could get other like scans to, to confirm that there's heart damage. But the problem there is, of course, if you're doing a passive surveillance study, which is a large study where you're looking at the population, you're expecting people to report their heart pain. Right, which right. is symptomatic. So, so the asymptomatic cases are not going to get reported. So that's a whole hidden part yes. of the population in those large passive surveillance studies, right? Yes. But what happens is those studies were used as the basis for making these estimates. And that's what was very misleading. The only studies that were reliable were those that monitored the heart condition after somebody was injected, which was a small, you know, like three studies that did did that. And they all showed between two and three percent um risk of myocarditis in the in the in 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 the in the young people. And and that's very really tragic because and this is the part that I always forget to say. <laughs> so yeah. I'll say it now. Because the long-term effects of myocarditis are what people don't realize okay they are they're 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 putting unfortunately these young people are at risk of heart failure you know decades down the road and it's 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 premature death because it's often very serious uh congestive heart failure cardiomyopathy and so that is a tragedy um, and-, and a
0: Huge and, tragedy. This is also a group of people that were at like no risk of COVID the virus. I mean, these are young, healthy, 18 to 25s, 15 to 21s, people that are going to smoke all sorts of illnesses were actually uh, diminishing their lifelong health in one yeah, that's,
1: You're absolutely right. In fact, the healthiest, the most fit people Mm-hmm. Because they exercise the most are the ones who are very much at risk of yeah. this. Um, because and I personally know someone, 28-year-old young woman uh from Chapel Hill had just gone and run a marathon and she came back from Europe, she was in the shower, and she died in the shower. Yeah. And, and she is a healthy, you know, as healthy as they come. And now, the parents demanded an autopsy. After two years, they still hadn't gotten an autopsy. And that's I unbelievable
0: know. to me. So but, how clear is it from your perspective? And then I want to talk about VAERS because that's oh, the yeah, other yeah. elephant in the room that is yeah. like, how can we ignore this? But. The autopsies, the idea that we're going to suddenly shift away, and that happening, you know, the film died suddenly, is probably the best done, and of course, is Steve Kirsch. Our guest is Nathaniel Mead. He, Steve Kirsch, Peter McCullough, they have a new article, a new paper out, COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, lessons learned from the registrational trials and global vaccination campaign it's out now it's on our website it's on dr mccullough's courageous discourse available for download so go to our links page go to courageous discourse and of course following peter mccullough on twitter uh all this is material is there um i I don't know working as we oh that's what i want to ask you real quick on that myocarditis i know we have about four to eight percent of these lethal shots but that does not restrict myocarditis to that 4 to per 8% of shots, right? I mean, the myocarditis risk is that extending outside, could be in every single, that potential danger shot. Uh, distinguishing there, meaning the lethality, you didn't make it out to the parking lot after your vaccine, right? That 4 to 8% versus it's not in the immediate death, but it is myocarditis. Help me understand that risk. Is it that why? Is it that... Uh, plentiful in the vaccines or is it still it has to be a part of that sort of more lethal dosing to get the myocarditis
1: that's a good question i i think part of the challenge in in answering this question is we're talking about short-term effects versus long-term effects sometimes with something like myocarditis if it's if it's asymptomatic And of course, Dr. McCullough is the one who should really be talking about this But Vaccine-induced myocarditis risk is about 2.5%, which is about Mm -hmm. 2,500 people per 100,000 recipients of the vaccine for for either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine after the second or third injections. That's what we see, okay? Mm -hmm. This is the important thing. This is indisputable and... We will never get uh, argued with on this because it's documented. This myocarditis risk in adolescent teens after the COVID mRNA vaccinations is about 37 times the <laughs> risk associated with the SARS-CoV-2 infection. Okay. Mm. Now that was that's maybe even conservative now because the Omicron subvariants are so mild. They're, right. they're, you know, even as of 2022, Omicron was dominant throughout the whole world and was considered on par with the common cold and the flu. I'm not making this up. Yeah. People can go, wait, what? 2022? I was still getting the shots in. Yeah, you were getting the shot for the common cold. Right. And, the, and, and you didn't even realize it. Of course, it didn't have any value at all. But all those young people, those adolescent teens were unwittingly being exposed to a incredibly dangerous shot experimental and actually anybody under the age of 40 really especially if they were athletes and they were doing aerobic type activity was putting were those people were putting themselves at risk of this sudden death phenomenon which yeah. we we know has happened on the on the field of sports Uh, At at a much higher rate, it's um, according to Dr. McCullough's estimates, which I, I think is, is accurate. It's about 10 times more uh, sudden deaths on the, uh, on the field, Hmm. Uh, at least in the European sports. uh, uh, I don't know if the data is also come from the United States, but I know that's, that's the case. Um, So, you know, I think, you know, I'm sorry, I'm giving you such a long answer, but Long-term risks are very hard to assess yeah. as part of this picture. And this is the great unknown. This is why we're in such a huge uncontrolled experiment. When I when I started uh, talking with my own siblings, I'm one of uh, eight <laughs> children. <Nice. laughs> I'm second oldest. Uh, two of my siblings have passed away, but um, prior to the pandemic it was yeah. much earlier. But um, when I was talking to uh, one of my siblings, and she asked me, "You know, how long do you think this is going to go on?" This is back in 2020. I said, "I think it's going to go on to about 2025, maybe 2026." Yeah, and I do feel that right now we're in phase three of the pa- of the so-called pandemic, and that is, you know, first phase was 2020 pre-vaccine. Then second phase was the post-vaccine period, or or you know the vaccine period where many people were injected at a very high rate, you know, in 2021-2022. And then it's dropped off dramatically for the whole population because people are waking up and, you know, the word is getting out and so now we're in the long-term phase. Now we're starting, you know, which could go on, you know, for 10 years. I, I, back in 2020, I said 2025, just because I had no idea what was going to happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but I did have an intuition that the government was going to un- roll these things out because I, I knew about the clinical trials going on. And I knew the corruption in the vaccine industry. And I knew that it went back to the 1970s. Yes. Um, uh, and uh, and I'll just tell you one little thing. I have a book here.
0: Yeah,
1: I have to pull it out, I see it. <laughs> Never shown this on the screen, but um, this is a book that I've had for a long time. Confessions yeah. of a Medical Heretic, <laughs> written in 1979, and in that book, he uh, he talks about the, um, the 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 vaccine trials that were done, and 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 the fact that. Uh, even back in the uh, in the 1970s, there was clear evidence of corruption in clinical research, where they where they showed that um, uh, one third of the trials that the drug companies claimed had been carried out to test these products had never even been carried out, and this was the FDA who reported this. Mm. <laughs> So back then the FDA wasn't, was still monitoring things in a responsible way. And right. people were thinking, oh, the FDA is protecting us. And I think that's, that's similar to what, what, you know, we also, how we viewed the CDC. Right. The, the CDC was protecting us. And so when we came into this um, many scientists just said, oh, whatever the CDC, CDC yeah. says, uh, you know, CDC is, is, is okay. But, uh, I, I So, okay, I'm going to let you ask another question. Well,
0: and, and that was so rich and so thick. I mean, I, I think our listeners, we got to understand, um, this is it. This is the summary of all the stuff that we were shouting from the mountaintop for years. This is all coming out. This is why this is such important and critical work. You talked about safety of these agencies and, and their sort of role. Um, we had Foster Colson on not that long ago and talk about who do you trust in medicine right now? Who would you look to? Because entities, institutions like the FDA, like the CDC, they've exposed themselves as incapable of delivering us, you know, honest, transparent health information. Theirs, theirs is the Vaccine Adverse um, Event Reporting System. It's a global system, right? So physicians and patients are pounding that all over. One of the uh, rebuttals or one of the uh, pushbacks on the paper is that the the VERS data is being misreported or misrepresented. Um, but the truth is, is that the injuries, deaths, issues associated with COVID shots are unlike any other vaccine or medicine we've ever had in history of mankind. And yet we've allowed that VERS, even though, and I think Dr. McCullough uses about a 30 multiple, underreported by 30 times. I know doctors will say, no, it's underreported by a hundredfold. Um, so when we see 16,000 deaths on VERS, we know that that's much closer to what one point six seven eight nine two million, and yet that's being pushed back. Is that that's that can't be taken as the data that it is? Go through VARES and how are we able to allow that to continue in the face of safety? It's the whole purpose was safety.
1: Yeah, the vaccine adverse uh, uh, the
0: vaccine adverse event birth Reporting yes. system,
1: yeah. Yes. So, so I'm so used to just saying VERS that I had to write. Right, I know them. me too. Uh, yeah. Um, first of all, the data in our paper with regard to VERS is based on direct queries that we pose to the system. We have a VERS expert as one of our co-authors. Is Dr. Jessica Rose
0: hmm.
1: is exceptionally credentialed uh, scientist, and uh, so she is. I, I don't really. I don't know anybody else who who knows more than she knows about bears. I mean, that's mm. that's for sure. Uh, so so her analyses are are rock solid and completely uh, reliable based on actual bears data. But as you said, the bears system is is a reporting system that's that's really designed to tell us whether there's a signal, whether there's a danger signal, because for depending on the adverse event, you'll have. More or less underreporting. You know, actually, you'll usually have a lot more underreporting, as you said. Right. Um, I, 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 actually, you know, it's somewhere between ten and hundred fold underreported, depending on the, um, depending on the the actual uh, outcome that you're looking at. So, uh, the most controversial one would be the deaths, the vaccine-related deaths, and that's the one that. You know, in our paper, um, we didn't really go into that with regard to theirs. We just looked at, um, I think, the most uh, you know exciting or provocative graph is the myocarditis graph, which clearly shows that the younger you are, as a as a young man in particular, um, the higher your myocarditis risk is, and that and that's from our own government database. So it, it, it should be, at the very least, viewed as a signal. Now, the degree to which myocarditis is underreported, I would say it's easily 40-fold, uh, and it's probably 60 to 80. I don't know. I, I should ask um, Jessica Rose about that. Uh, but especially, I mean, just think ra- logically that, first of all, it's very, uh, with, with regard to myocarditis, you're going to miss it most of the time because it's a lot uh it's going to be either a mild heart pain that people don't feel like well why should i report that to VAERS i don't really need to i'm just gonna i'm gonna deal with it i'll tell my physician but my physician's not going to report it because a the physician doesn't even know about VARS in most cases b when the physician calls VAERS it takes a long time to get these things in and physicians are very busy they they don't train their staff in how to deal with theirs, so their you know theirs is yep. grossly underreported for many reasons. Yes, um, aside from the basic fact that myocarditis is often uh, asymptomatic, which of course people are not going to ever report that. But um, uh, I would say that the the VAERS system, you know, in general, it it, it gets maligned now yeah which is ironic because prior to to covid it was respected and it was considered a really good system for reporting dangerous effects but the very system clearly shows that the covid shots are having you know i mean i, I don't have the numbers in front of me but it's dramatic how how it spiked up you know as of 2021 as you know yes um i I also, before we um, before we conclude this interview, I want to make sure that we talk about two issues, cancer and uh dna uh contamination please go
0: now here's these and those are going to be outside of that immediate heart attack stroke that you didn't make it home you fell you you died in your sleep that night these are those longer term risks they are real let's go into those right now because the turbo cancers we're seeing where we have uh, stage four cancers overnight Um, i know there's been so much study about breast four stage four breast cancer in three months, um, on a, on a 40 year old woman that had never, you know, those kind of cancers, we would hear those. What did your research, what did your findings tell us? Okay. That
1: I, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about it right now. I just want to hit two other issues first about our paper that are really critical that have to do with serious adverse events, which was that- a major point of our paper. Um, the, um, the, the, many people have probably heard of this this name, Joseph Freeman Joseph Freeman, uh is a physician who did who led a research team. They did a really great in-depth investigation analysis of uh, the data sets from the Pfizer and Moderna trials. And these these encompass about four months of observation. And his re- reanalysis this is rock solid. This is based on a randomized placebo-controlled double-blind trials that showed that when they looked back at the data and they looked at the serious adverse events that were in the trial that were not honestly reported in the published papers by Pfizer and Moderna, Framon's analysis showed a significant 36% increase higher risk of serious adverse events, which includes death, strokes, heart attacks, uh, pulmonary embolisms, uh, and crippling uh, neurological issues, autoimmune problems that are f- considered you know, life-threatening. And so all of these conditions were 36% higher in the vaccine group compared to the placebo. And it was statistically significant. Uh, then they found a fourfold higher risk of serious adverse uh, events of uh, what were called uh, serious adverse events of special interest. They called them, which is based on certain criteria. And those were fourfold higher. Um, those were the the reason they were of special interest is because they were predicted to be associated with the vaccines, okay, based on preliminary data. So um, the, the Pfizer trial showed a fourfold increase in risk. The Moderna file tr- showed a doubling increase in risk. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the most interesting um uh estimate that they came up with was based on the Pfizer trial data, which is considered to be more reliable than Moderna. Moderna was considered to be more corrupt uh for, mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. Um they estimated um uh let's see it was it was um 1250 serious adverse events per million which comes out to about 1 out of 800 all right now previously a serious adverse event for a vaccine if it reached 1 or 2 out of a million it was blocked from the market okay or, or that was no let me sorry let me back back that up Previously, if it was one or two per million, it was marginally acceptable, okay? It, but, but Freeman's analysis found uh, 1,250 serious adverse events per million, so that's 600 times higher than what's considered acceptable, okay? Um, and as we said, you know, in the paper, we documented how previously vaccines were pulled from the market you know, like the swine flu vaccine back yep. in um, was It was at a rate of one per 100,000. Um, the rotavirus was a rotashield vaccine that was um, uh, one or two out of 10,000, I think. And, but this is one out of 800. <laughs> so, so, you know, it, it's kind of mind blowing that you know, here we have, we have historical precedents for removing these things from the market. Why haven't they been removed from the market? Our right. paper is actually just stating the obvious, you know? Right. The global moratorium is just stating the obvious for any rational public health scientists. Um, we also prevent risk-benefit analysis from other scientists in our paper. But I think, that, like for example, there was a group called uh, Moral uh, Falk Moral out of Germany showed that the Pfizer vaccine produced 25 times more serious adverse events than severe covid cases prevented so that was a risk benefit analysis 25 uh, so you know uh these are these are um just basic you know um rational arguments i'll mention one other scientist and then we'll go to the cancer and and um and um genetic uh, yes. GNA contamination issue. Um, there was an, a, another group that we cited heavily in our paper because they did such important work and I want to make sure that we that I mentioned them. And that is um, Corinne uh, Mickels. Um, and Corinne Mickels uh, and her colleagues published in the peer-reviewed International Journal of Vaccine Theory, Practice, and Research. Um, and it's, 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 it's one of the, maybe the only journal that hasn't been captured that is specifically focused on vaccines. Okay. Um, and all of their data came directly from the Pfizer six month trial. So after Pfizer finished their two month thing, they extended it for four months and, you know, they did a, um, and so we were able to, to look at, um, to follow the the people who were originally vaccinated, as well as the people who became vaccinated after the uh, placebo groups uh, got sort of you know converted, right? <laughs> and uh, not not all of them did. But um, so what what they found was that um, first of all, it was really telling that the that all of the data was underreported um, yes. because Pfizer only reported 38 deaths now that I'm saying only, but um, that's about 17% of what would have been expected in the whole US population if you extrapolate it out from, from the population composition. So we know that there was gross underreporting. We also know that there were 400, uh, uh, just under 400 participants who were lost to follow up, quote unquote. So we have no idea. Well, okay, you got 38 deaths, but then you got 400 people who are quote lost to follow up what happened to those people uh did they die did they did people get crippled and they couldn't even come back for their we don't know i mean it's it's uh now you know some some pfizer people would say oh you're just you know speculating wildly but it's irresponsible for for a clinical trial that's the basis for worldwide distribution of an experimental product a gene-based injection it's Irresponsible to not follow up on those 400 people and find out what happened to them. It's 100%. not a rocket.
0: It's not a rock-
1: Yeah. So so going back to what Corinne Nichols found, though, I think it was really, really profound because yeah. what they found is a fourfold increase in uh, cardiac cardiac serious adverse events. So all kinds of heart related problems. That could predispose people either to dying in the short term or dying premature death in the long term, and um, as well as heart attacks that killed them on the spot. So that's a fourfold increase in the vaccine group versus the placebo. Now that's based (laughs) on the clinical trial data. It can't be said any more clearly. This is. Pfizer's own data. So this was very dishonest of mm-hmm. and trial coordinators. It, it, they, the reason it, it got hidden from the public is they delayed the documentation until after the FDA's authorization. Right. They delayed the documentation of all of these serious adverse events. And so, so, you know, the FDA approval process went through and that was just extremely dishonest of yes. the trial coordinators. Um, and, you know, many other pr- uh, problems were found. I, you probably remember there was a Pfizer whistleblower mm-hmm. uh, who, who reported that the protocols were deviated from the improper storage of vaccines, yep. uh, you know, mislabeling of laboratory specimens, things like that. So those things were happening that led to even more underreporting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, And, and uh, lack, well, lack of timely follow up of patients basically was was a key thing, you know, they didn't, they didn't follow up. And and I think it's again, because the vaccine industry, and, you know, the larger biopharmaceutical industry, they do not really want to report accurately on adverse events, because then they can't sell their product, right, you know, it's like if you were selling your car, I hate to use this analogy, but if you were selling your car and you knew that there were some problems, right, but you knew that you could get like a couple hundred bo- dollars more, Yeah. Well, you might say, well, maybe I just won't mention that or I'll just say, yeah, you could do some maintenance on that, this and that, right? Yeah. But it leads to underreporting. Big time. <laughs> now, people are never going to buy a car from me because I just said that, but but um, publicly, yeah. i just You're Right. <laughs> um, But but, uh, uh, you know, the issue is that this human nature in some ways, but it's it's a bias. It's an extreme bias. Uh, And I would say if we
0: had an ice cream product out there and one in 800 cartons were were killing people, they're going to pull my ice cream off the market and I'm sued to oblivion. So this is a unique uh, big pharma special. Uh, okay that only pertains to them because every other industry is wiped out when you have just an inkling of their kind of thing you know but the word cancer and this gene modification you know this is this is stuff that everybody because okay you made it through you didn't drop dead but cancer i feel like for most of society it's just sort of out there hanging as a black cloud you're going to get at some point in your life this data is going to show we've increased chances of getting cancer in our life. I think that's another obvious uh, potential observation. Go into those datas and what this thing is actually doing at that level.
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> I would say the cancer question is very complex and and is um, my background is really in studying cancer primarily. So I'm, I'm very interested in this. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that the... The big question is the long-term effects in terms of both cancer and autoimmune disease. That's the big unknown for for so many people. The reason this is such a serious issue, the cancer, is multiple reasons actually. Um, If you have a predisposition to cancer, and let's say you're a man who has a percolating prostate situation that's like pre you know pre-clinically significant it's not clinically significant prostate cancer it's it's subclinical it's not it's it may never actually manifest as a full-blown prostate cancer right but because these shots have an inflammatory and immune dysfunctional impact on the body both inflammation and immune disruption, especially in terms of disrupting the key T cell and and um, you know other mechanisms that I won't go into. That but you know it it does. In the paper, we discuss how the immune system becomes dysfunctional as a result of these shots. And many of those same mechanisms are known to be associated with cancer being um, uh, triggered. And in many cases. Uh, fueled in a hyper progression manner, yes. okay, which has been called turbo cancers in, in, the, in the public right. parlance. But, but hyper progression is a well known phenomenon in cancer, it's usually associated ironically with immune therapies that are somewhat experimental. That's how they, they identified hyper hyper progression in the first place, you know, some years ago, uh, maybe 20 years ago, um, and we know some of the mechanisms uh, and they are associated with the COVID-19 mRNA in, in, uh, shots. But let's say, so you have this predisposition. Let's say, you know, it could be a woman who who has um, ductal cell carcinoma, which is a localized uh, precursor of breast cancer. It's not breast cancer. It's pre-breast cancer, but the inflammation and the immune disruption could be enough to move it in the direction of breast cancer, okay? Right. Probably the most common factor, however, is when you have somebody who's in remission from cancer and their cancer cells, let's say they got surgery and maybe they did radiation, chemo, whatever, but they, they have some residual cells that went were dormant. Okay, these are Mm -hmm. sleeping cells, they're quiescent, and those cells could come back as a metastatic disease at any time. This is, you know, the fear with someone who has, um, you know, a, a, let's say, initially, uh, what's called a high-grade cancer, which means it's very mutated, so there's a high risk that it will come back, right? Right. So Those people are hoping and and not wanting the cancer to come back, but if you then give an inflammatory stimulus with a a lipid nanoparticle uh, delivered mRNA that is generating the spike protein that's very inflammatory in the tissue where these residual dormant cells are hanging out, then those cells can become awakened and they yeah. are no longer dormant and they start to proliferate. And so w- what has been happening and William Mackis has really done the best work on this. He's an oncologist in Canada and he's he's documented hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Yeah, probably thousands at this point of cases where uh, people had been in remission for a very long time. And usually if you're in remission like 15, 20 years, you're considered to be you know cured. Um, but. Uh, then these, these cancers are coming back after a very, very long time. Um, Right. So, you know, there are a number of mechanisms that are involved and one could be the, what we call process related impurities that are related to DNA fragments Mm -hmm. that are in the, um, the batches of vaccine that were allowed to be distributed to the public after the authorization process. And this is another really important point that people don't realize is that the process that was used during the clinical trials to produce the COVID mRNA vaccines was different from the process that was used after the authorization process, because in order to to mass produce this product to the public, they had to use what they now call process two Process one was used during the clinical trial. But process two introduced, unfortunately, a lot of bacterial DNA contamination uh, via the the plasmids that were used to generate the mRNA in, in large quantities. And this has huge implications. Because if that foreign DNA, which is bacterial DNA, which, by the way, has been found in all of the vaccine samples that have been analyzed to date, Wow. okay?
0: Uh-huh.
1: Our paper has been criticized by various people because they think this isn't real, but it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's like the Wizard of Oz, they say, pay yes. no attention to the man behind the screen. It's that kind of thing, or these are not the joys you're looking for. You know, it's it's real. These things are, are there and they're in all of the COVID mRNA vaccine samples that have been analyzed to date to the tune of billions of fragments per Jeez. sample okay mm. it's kind of mind-boggling people think billions wait a minute that's like talking about the stars in the sky aren't
0: you yeah right <laughs> but
1: uh, but you know the two two issues that are really important regulatory agencies they failed to disclose these uh process related impurities these dna fragments Yes. Okay. The fact that there was DNA contamination, they should have exposed that. They also should have included in their statement, as Dr. Joe Lodapo has said from yep. Florida, brilliant Harvard-trained physician, and yep. I totally have so much respect for him. They should have mentioned the SV40 sequences, right. which, which have been linked with cancer in multiple studies. Now, we don't say in the paper that they're causing cancer through SV40. We don't know if it's being integrated into the human genome. But again, from a precautionary point of view, you don't want to be taking something where you know that there's a carcinogenic substance. It's really a co-carcinogen. It works with other cancer-related risk factors. And that's how it seems to cause cancer in the body. But again, it's Russian roulette. You know, if, mm-hmm. if, you're if you're taking these things and, and, and you know that there is a potential for these to get integrated into the human genome, it's a very real potential. And so, you know, will the bacterial DNA, DNA that's in all of these get integrated into the human d- genome? And if so, what will be the consequences? That is a huge question. We don't know.
0: I, and I um, love the way you set that up because we're these health agencies, they have to be erring on the side of protection. And if we can't say emphatically, then we're going to err on the side of safety. And they didn't do that. They said, we can get this through with as little bit of pushback as possible, but we got to go quick. And then now the waters are so muddied because there was so much vaccination 21, 22, you step back. It's like, okay, well, who, they're making it really chaotic to sift through what they've done.
1: Right. And the other thing there is, you know, there wasn't any informed consent. Like if, if, if there had been informed consent and people right. had been told, oh, by the way, there is a potential that you could have DNA contamination resulting in integration of these uh, SV40 sequences into your mm. into your DNA, people would have said, why would I want to do that? I'm, right. I'm already, you know, I'm at low risk of, uh, you know, I don't mind having some colds and coughs and, uh, you know, yep. some... Uh, some uh flu symptoms I don't mind that you know and and the majority of the population if they had been informed in that way would have said no yes to the shot
0: hundred percent
1: but so there was there was tremendous deception uh, you know I I I probably uh get in trouble for saying this but <laughs> I've come to see this the CDC as a center for deception and control
0: yeah. yeah well said I love that acronym
1: yeah uh, I want to yeah deceptology is another term. Deceptology,
0: <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Uh, these are highly trained deceptionists. There's no doubt about this, and they've been practicing um, mm-hmm. for some time. I, I want to kind of go into the reason, and we'll kind of end with this because this sh- shoots us into the future, is a paper like this is is incredibly um, uh, obnoxious, irritating, threatening to big Pharma and that whole agency that that regulates them. Um, because it's calling into account. You've got to do a better job at protecting the public. We need a place to trust. And and they've, they've exposed themselves as not trustworthy. And, and once you lose that trust, like you could never come, like by force is the only way you could get me to do a vaccine, right? Gun to my head, I'm chained to a bed. And that's because of what you've revealed to me during COVID, that you're not trustworthy. The data isn't what you said and that people, we can see it physically around us. People aren't the same or they're no longer with us. So I wonder... Is it just come down to, we're threatening somebody's power and money, and that's why they would push back or or, or categorize people that are doing God's work, truthful work, um, because this certainly... For every positive, there's a group that's saying, well, this is going to hurt us. Uh, Big Pharma, fire said, so why would you do this to us? That kind of thing. So tell us that much. is A paper like this, it gets traction. Paper like this that gets in the lap of every American and really becomes absorbed and felt in the heart. It's one thing to say, gosh, that doesn't sound good, and I'm right back to my everyday life. But this stuff comes into the heart and says, I want to rethink everything. Give us your thought as about you know sort of the, the power of a paper like this now moving forward as a society, how we can use it to our benefit.
1: Yeah, this paper is a tremendous threat to the status quo uh, of the biopharmaceutical uh, complex, so to speak, because the industry does make huge amounts of money, unfortunately, uh, off of other people's suffering and premature yeah. death, you know, and um, you, you don't have to look any further than the commercials on TV, which we I don't have a TV, but right. you know, I've seen mm-hmm. TVs where they, you know, advertisements and they list all the adverse side effects at the end right these are drugs that were approved initially without mentioning all those things exactly but but then they really still you know you can see the money-making aspect of the industry is very clear and greed is is a very dark aspect of human nature uh i think in this case the greed helped an agenda along that may have been even darker than just greed yeah but i i you know it's it's hard to dismiss that um because we do know that it was a bioweapons facility now we know definitively that released the virus and then the uh remedy was a bioweapons Remedy that because it was a, it was heavily invested in by the Department of Defense to the tune of billions of dollars, and Barda, which um, was also involved with pre-pandemic um, investments in the mRNA vaccines, and so we had these defense industry um, interests involved in investing in something that was designed for for bio warfare, hmm. and now people are walking around with this in their bodies so that's it's it's really very dark from that point of view yeah. and you think okay well obviously there would be a very strong need to suppress this information and keep it coming out so we were very surprised that the journal allowed us to get published right we we fully expected to get this thing retracted and in fact the publisher is now threatening retraction i hate to even even bring this up but yeah because there has been such a backlash and and of course we expected it you know but when we looked you know we went through an an arduous process this was a labor of love for me i had no financial backing i i decided to just do this because I care for the people I love and I wanted to get the information out and uh, I wanted to make sure that it was done in a way that where the public can make sense of what has happened over the last few years Mm -hmm. and I think this paper really does that and and it it does it better than any other review paper. I know that sounds like I'm bragging but we had so much great integration of information and collaboration with top-notch scientists who understand what's going on and we're able to bring this forth but the publishing business in 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 the cancer i'm sorry in the scientific publishing realm is a precarious business because the pharmaceutical industry has its tentacles extended into every major journal and most of them have been completely captured like the lancet british medical journal used to be very respected now everybody knows it's just a mouthpiece for the vaccine industry same thing with new england journal of medicine journal of american medical association they're no longer in terms of anything that's reported there that has to do with vaccines it's all advertisements it's all it's and if you see an editorial in there about vaccines it's an advertorial (laughs) Right.
0: <laughs> how but, wonderful yes
1: that's really what it is it's an advertorial so <laughs> we chose this journal curious because they seemed very brave and they they were actually publishing papers about for example there's a paper about how di- people with diabetes are at greater risk of dying from vaccine related injury covid yeah. vaccine related injury they then published a, a really great paper about um, uh, the cancer issue, from what they call the multi-hit hypothesis, and how the COVID nineteen vaccines could promote cancer in that way. So we we saw this. We thought, okay, this is a really good journal for us to work with, because they seem to be uh, beyond the reach of this corrupt influence of the pharmaceutical industry. But the problem is that our journal, this journal, Curious, was acquired by a very large um hmm. umbrella organization called springer nature um which unfortunately is uh it appears now to to be captured and and so it was it was uh acquired at the end of 2022 and uh 2023 i wasn't aware of this i didn't realize that this had happened uh but these mergers are often happening behind yeah. the scenes sure. if you're not watching them. so what we are we are dealing with right now is the threat of retraction uh the curious editors and the publisher springer are clearly in violation of what are called the cope guidelines which is the committee on public uh committee on publication ethics that's mm-hmm. what COPE stands for okay so this is all about the the the, the core sure. practices and policies that that Journals and and publishers need to abide by these are like ethical standards in publication. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they have violated these standards by threatening retraction because we went through an arduous peer review process with eight reviewers, academic reviewers that were all approved by Curious. I had to deal with all of their comments and criticisms, and we went back and forth, back and forth, and we resubmitted the paper numerous times Mm -hmm. in order to get it published, and easily over 200 comments uh, total that I had to deal with, and having to provide modifications and, you know, new research and substantiation for, I mean, it's an incredible journey to get it to this point right but now it appears that curious is under pressure from the covid-19 vaccine stakeholders mm-hmm. and they're you know to they're they're under pressure to basically suppress critical um you know fully peer reviewed uh information that we provided on the risks and benefits the lack the lack of benefit from the covid-19 vaccinations and it's it's a huge threat because we present it in such a uh, cogent and compelling way and it's so clear. Yeah, that's why it's so threatening. Exactly. If it was if it was vague and yep. it was like, a, you know, a little sound bite here and a sound bite there. Great. But this is not a soundbite. This right. is this is a big picture. This is what happened. And these, these are the lessons we learned. We made a huge mistake. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and if we were if we were adults, yeah. we would own up to the fact and take responsibility for that. But you know, that's not what's happening. So this is nope. this is definitely uh, this is a critical time. I I really hope that people will download this paper before the retraction occurs because we fully expect it to go through. Yep. Unfortunately. Um, we we will publish in another journal. Um, we have seven other papers that are going to be submitted very soon. Um, so this isn't over.
0: Yeah, no,
1: (laughs) you know, I, you know, it, it will be suppressed. It will, it will be, um, the media, especially New York times, uh, which I used to respect a lot, um, and some other publications that are, you know, I consider to be, uh, Mainly serving the interests of the of the pharmaceutical industry, those uh, will will ridicule us for being um, retracted, and it will be used to put put us down because people will say, "Oh, look, that failed." That, that yeah. and 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 remember, this is the first ever peer review meta- scientific paper to propose a global moratorium, first ever. Uh, Mm. Many politicians have proposed it, but it's never made it through a peer review process. So even the fact that it made it to this point is a landmark, you know, it's a significant thing, but it will be used, and this is a new strategy that the industry is using for censorship. What they do is they figure, okay, well, somehow that made it through. Now let's get it retracted
0: mm. because
1: once we get it retracted, it's very hard for those authors to get the same paper published elsewhere. Right. Okay. So that's what they're thinking is mm. it's a very effective strategy. And because, uh, you know, to get on PubMed, which is what we're on right now. Yeah. And I would urge people to go on PubMed to download our paper. Um, and, and, you know, because, it, it will, once the retraction goes through it, will have a, a mark on it saying retracted, and then uh, people will be, you know. But ironically, I have to tell you that before we got the notice from Springer mm-hmm. that the retraction, the, the, with the threat of retraction, um, I was on with, uh, Todd, I think it was Todd Johnson, I think his mm-hmm. name is. Yeah and uh and the last thing i said to him this is the day before we got the letter the last thing i said was please download this as much as possible because we're very concerned i was on with dr mccullough he and i were on together i said we're very concerned that that a retraction could happen any day you know and sure enough the next morning we get a letter uh from springer so i feel my psychic abilities no kidding Level.
0: Well, you know, uh, that's how it just speaks to what a great paper and how thick and how rich and how um, you know, it's just out there. You make your own opinion and you still want to go get one of these vaccines after you read a paper like this, God bless you. But don't say you didn't have full consent, full disclosure. And, and that's all we were asking for from the beginning. And people, uh, free will is a wonderful thing. We're so thankful we have that. Um, but we can't be deceived and we can't be given poisons without our cons- consent. And, and so that's why this is such an important piece. Uh, the yeah. article, it's on PubMed now. COVID-19 mRNA vaccines, lessons learned from the registrational trials and global vaccination campaign. Uh, courageous discourse with Peter McCullough. I want you to take us through all the places that we can stay connected with you. Final thoughts, all of that, please, Nathaniel.
1: Okay, so when people go on PubMed, which we we encourage you to do that this week as much as possible. Yes. And tell your friends to do it, to get it before this horrible censorship process goes through. Right. Um, but they can, when they go in PubMed, they can simply put in my name, Mead, M-E-A-D, and McCullough, and lessons learned, okay? okay? Those four things, Mead, McCullough, lessons learned, and the paper will pop right up, and then they simply click on the open access link, I think it's the full, full text, free free full text link, mm-hmm. and then they can click on the PDF and download the paper from there. So those are the steps, those are the necessary steps. And um, the reason this is so important is for those people who care about free speech and censorship and and, and worry about the threat of censorship in the United States, uh, this is a very real issue in the scientific community. The censorship of scientists has never been in the history of the United States, we have never seen anything like this, and it is abominable. And we should be, we should all be um, writing to our representatives and and rebelling against the fact that scientists are being censored across the board if they question the pharmaceutical industry's. Again, the pharmaceutical industry, the largest industry on Earth, now has extensive control over the narrative and over the you know, uh, way that science is being presented to the public. So our paper explains how the public was misled, and people need to, to go and check that out so they can realize, uh, why why did I believe these things for the yeah. last few years? Well, this is why. This is why you believed it, and it explains it very clearly. But download it this week. Please encourage your friends to do it. And um, and if you do that, it will help improve the status of our paper before it it, it gets rejected, assuming that the retraction goes through, yeah. which you know, tragically, I think it, it probably will. Uh, but we will uh, find a way to, uh, we will be appealing for sure. We're going yeah. to appeal to Springer and to uh, to Curious. But uh, I think the the key issue here is we got to get as many downloads as possible. People can also go on the Curious.com website and give us a rating, yeah. which which would be really helpful. It's just to the, when you go on Curious.com and you find the paper, you will see a little box to the left of the title that says SIQ rating, and please give us a high rating. Yes,
0: <laughs> because, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. We want to support, support that. Very high. It's very yeah. high rating. Yeah. A- because that's the kind of work it is, and it's, it's the truth behind it. I mean, for most folks, what I love about the paper is it's not a shaming, it's not a blaming, and you're a stupid, bad person. All is forgiven. You were deceived by one of the greatest machines of all time, but we now need to deal with the fact that that was deception. Um, I want to say God bless this paper, and God bless your work. I thank you for coming on, and all the authors of this paper, we will continue to support it. Get this message out, folks. Share it loud and proud, and do this until next time. Serve God. Help others stay good goodbye god bless everybody thank you